Good morning. All right, hear the word of the Lord. I hated all, oh, this is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 26. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his works, work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after win. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. We are, uh, if, if you haven't been here over the past few weeks or if you're just visiting with us today, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a really interesting, challenging book. Um, the main character is this guy named Kohelet, and he's, on, he's, he's been on this journey, this, this quest that is really universal in its scope to find the meaning of life, to find something that gives human existence uh, value and purpose and meaning in this mess of a world we've got that is full of so much struggle and confusion and hardship. And so, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he, he explored wisdom. He said, maybe this, maybe knowledge and wisdom and the right rules and principles will be the thing that bring meaning to life. But no, that doesn't work. Uh, last week, we looked at how he pursued pleasure, how he just tried to fill his life with as much enjoyment as possible but that didn't work either. And now, in the passage that Paige read for us, he turns his attention to work. Work, like labor, toil. Maybe this will be the thing that rises above the hebel. And you remember what that word means, hebel? It's a Hebrew word, and it means what? Vapor, Vapor or smoke it gets translated vanity of vanities, hebel. Maybe work will be the thing that rises above the hebel and that gives meaning and purpose to human existence. Now. Uh, you might think <clears throat> that that's a good instinct. And you especially might think that if you're familiar with the opening of the Bible story, because remember what we find when we look to the opening chapters of Genesis is that work is really good. Work is really good. In fact, work itself is a way that humanity is meant to like bear and reflect the image of God, which is so different from a common view of work, a view that maybe you have, that it's like, oh, work is cursed. Right? Work, is, work is the result of sin, or, or it's something that, 
that has to be tolerated at, at best while we pursue other endeavors like leisure and family and spirituality and intellectual development and all those good things. But no, uh, that view actually arises more from Greek philosophical traditions. So like, you know, guys like Plato and Aristotle, uh, they argued that work was demeaning and that it should be reserved for like servants and slaves and that human beings should seek to become like the gods. You become more godlike, not by working, but by withdrawing from work and devoting yourself to a life of contemplation. And, and so on that view, like the more, the more godlike you become, the less work you do. But when we go to the Bible story, we see uh, just in the very opening chapters, God himself working. God works. God creates, he makes, he gathers, he produces, he sets, he orders, he plants. Like God gets, gets his hands dirty in the soil, he digs, he works, and he delights in his work. And he says, this is good. Uh, he, he, enjoy, he finds um, joy in the labor of his creation. And then what does he do? Uh, God creates humanity to be like him. We read the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. What? To sit around and think? No. To work it. He put him in the garden to work it. To take care of it. He made humans to work with him to create. To, to kind of like partner with God in uh, the work of creation. To tend it and to take care of it. And, and so a way, in a way... Um, God's work is left unfinished, and instead of doing all the work himself, he commissions us to the cultivation of creation, to do something with the raw materials of the earth, to like make something of it, to make something good and true and beautiful of it, to harvest fields, to help people thrive and flourish, to like build cities, to, to, um, to contribute to culture. He, God says, I work, and now you work. He says, I delight in my work, now you Go and you delight in your work and your creativity and your cultivation and your stewardship and your labor. So, so in the Bible story, um, work is a profoundly good thing. It's not a necessary evil. It's not a punishment for human rebellion against God. It's something that we were made for. I mean, it's something so central to our vocations as human beings. It's, it's one of the main ways that we are like God right there from the very beginning. And so we can understand Kohelet's instinct to, to um, find meaning in work. It's an instinct that we probably share a lot of the times. Um, you know, we're always trying to find meaning in our work and to make, and, and, then, and then what we often do is we make our work really central to our identity, we, and then we start to load all kinds of hopes and expectations onto the work we do for fulfillment and satisfaction. And, and subtly, maybe not so subtly, uh, we start to equate being someone with having a good job. And, and you know, this formation starts pretty early. What are we always asking kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? And, and you remember, like, the, the answer that we expect is, is not, like, I want to be a humble, grateful human being who follows Jesus faithfully. No, we expect to hear something like, I want to be a firefighter or an astronaut or a doctor or a lawyer. Like, we're, we're expecting something along those lines. And, and you know that that never stops. Like, when you're meeting someone for the first time, what's one of the first questions that comes up? It's like, so what do you do? Yeah, like, what do you do? And, and, and again, what we mean by that is not like, um, like, do you try to make the world a decent place? Like, we, we mean, like, what do you do for, 
a living. Like, what's your job? And that is it's the worst when you're a pastor. Because uh, it's just like, it's, it's either a conversation killer or it's an invitation to pastoral care when you're not, when you're not on the clock. And all you, you just want to say something way different. Um, they, they, you, you can see the person mentally reviewing their conversation up to that point and counting their curse words and just being like, oh, like, I've really blown it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but I am, I am a pastor. That's what I do. So it's, it's awkward, usually. If you have ideas for things I could say that are true and yet not so churchy, please tell me. Um, a... Um, a Pew Research Center, the Pew Research Center just released interesting data. This was like as of a few days ago. Um, a big survey went out. Americans were asked what it takes to have a fulfilled life, and most people ranked a career or a job they enjoy above other things like friends, having children, being married, even above having lots of money. It's more important to have a career or some kind of job that you enjoy. That's more important for having a fulfilled life than having lots of money. That surprised me. Um, we tend to look to our jobs for a sense of identity and security and fulfillment. We think if the good life is possible, the way we're going to get it is through our work. And so all that to say, when Kohelet turns his attention to work, we might think, okay, it's about time. I mean, why didn't you just start with that? Kohelet's quest can come to an end because... If anything can fill our lives with meaning and purpose, surely it's this, surely it's work. But what is Kohelet's experience with work? Is it profound satisfaction and fulfillment? Is it joy? Is it meaning? Not so much. What does he write? He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. See, what Kohelet concludes is that his work is hevel along with everything else. What especially troubles him is that we spend our entire lives working, laboring, toiling, trying to make a name for ourselves, or trying to amass wealth and to save enough for retirement, or trying to leave some kind of legacy for the next generation. But what happens? Well, death happens. And then what happens to whatever we've accomplished? Well, the trouble is, we just don't know. And that's Kohelet's point. Like, we don't know whether the people who come after us will handle our life's work wisely or foolishly. Inheritances can be squandered. Legacies can be lost. Kohelet says, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it. So, so you spend your whole life working, working really diligently and well, and then what? You die and someone else gets the benefit, and there's just no guarantee that whatever you have worked for will be stewarded responsibly and wisely after you're gone. Like, we just have no control or say about the matter, and Kohelet says, that is crazy. That's absurd. And Kohelet isn't finished with his complaint about work. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You see, not only is our work reduced to Hebel by our deaths, but our experience of work while we're still alive is so often not one of satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment, 
but rather of sorrow and pain and confusion. But none of you can relate to that. Now, of course, we can relate to that. I mean, chances are, even if we really enjoy our work and are glad to be doing what we do, we still have seasons of like, profound disappointment and frustration and restlessness. What do we have to show for our work? You see, successes, maybe some of the time, but sometimes it really is just sorrow and confusion and sleepless nights. Another recent survey from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine found that nearly 90% of Americans lose sleep at night because of money or work concerns. Man, it's a lot of people losing sleep over money and work. So you see, the experience of work itself can just be exhausting and stressful, anxiety-producing. I mean, we can feel just as, it can feel just as much like Hebel as everything else. And so how does Kohela respond to the reality of this experience with work? Look again with me at verses 24 through 26. I just want to read these again. He says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is, is hebel. I mean, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's so interesting because for the first time, Kohelet seems to have something at least slightly positive to say. And, and whereas God has been entirely absent from his quest up to this point, now God is front and center but what's the result? What's the result? I mean, does bringing God into the picture just, oh, suddenly clarify everything and tidy up uh, everything for, for Kohelet? Not at all. Not at all. When Kohelet says there's nothing better for a person than eating and drinking and enjoying his toil, he's not suddenly turning to a celebration of God's good gifts. Um, this is more of a sigh of resignation. It's all Hebel, according to Kohelet. And, and so this is just, he's saying, like, this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. We might as well take some enjoyment wherever God gives it. And God seems to give it to some and not to others. And, and no super clear explanation about why. And so we can understand why there, again, at the end of that paragraph, Kohelet concludes, this also is Hebel. It's just, it's this baffling enigma that we cannot um, penetrate with our minds. Like, we just don't know what's going on here. <clears throat> it's worth pausing here, maybe, to underscore this. Um, family, for Kohelet, bringing God into the picture doesn't make life less confusing. Doesn't make life less confusing. God isn't like a simple solution that Kohelet brings in to suddenly solve all of his problems. If anything, we, we can say, I think, that Kohelet's faith in God actually um, makes the situation even more confusing because now he's struggling with a God who he doesn't really understand in a world that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. And, and so that's a good reminder for us, I think, that having faith does not mean not having questions. And having faith certainly doesn't mean having easy answers to the questions that we have. No, faith and confusion, they can just walk hand in hand. You can be faithful and you can be utterly confused. 
and they can just go together. Um, in any case, at this point, Kohelet has been let down by work. You can see that. Death means that someone else receives everything we've attained, and so our contribution to the world, it's never really secure. There's just no guarantee that it's not going to be squandered as soon as you're off the scene. That's Hebel. Plus, the experience of work itself is so often disappointing. It's painful. It's unsatisfying. Like, it just doesn't deliver on what it promises to bring the recognition we crave or the fulfillment that we long for. And, and, and Kohelet says, that's Hebel too. That's Hebel too. And so the best we can do is, is just to take some enjoyment in our work wherever God gives it. And, and maybe God will bless you with some enjoyment in your work, and maybe not. And there it is. <laughs> uh, that's the wonderful world, world of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> so where does it leave us? Well, uh, I, I hope this isn't getting too formulaic, but I, just, I don't know how else to deal with these passages. Um, what we've been saying every week, and what I imagine we'll continue to say uh, in the weeks to come, is that Ecclesiastes really is true. It is true. And maybe the first move for us to make this morning is just to sit with the truth of it for a, for a bit. Um, because Kohelet's experience uh, is real, and it's so familiar to so many of us. I mean, working is this beautiful, uh, excuse me, working in this beautiful befuddling world that we've got uh, really can be confusing and painful and exhausting and frustrating and all the rest. I mean, working east of Eden can feel absolutely absurd. And so remember that the author of Ecclesiastes is wanting to help us grapple with, with what it means to live with purpose in the world as it actually is. And the world as it actually is is a world that includes that Genesis 1 and 2 part of the story, but it's also a world that includes Genesis 3 and following. And so it's blessing and it's curse. And so now our work participates in the fallen world just like everything else. And, and, and so some of us um, are doing work that we just don't enjoy at all. And, and some of you tell me about that. It's like, man, it's like you, you've just hated the job that you have and you, you wish you could be doing something else. And, and some of us are unable to work because of injury or unemployment or age. And some of us overwork, and we, uh, we just are constantly drawing too much of a sense of identity from our jobs. And, and all of us have experienced frustration and discouragement in our work or in our lack of work. I mean, it's just, it can just be hard. And so because we live in a Genesis 3 world, the goodness of work, it exists right alongside, like, the cursedness of work. Our work can feel like a whole lot of Hebel, and maybe the first thing for us to do is just to acknowledge it and say, yeah, yeah. Like, that doesn't contradict the life of faith. Like, that can walk hand in hand with the life of faith. Ecclesiastes is true. It's true. But it's not the whole truth. And it's not the whole truth because the claim of the church is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, and, and that actually isn't just something that we, we say, but it's something that uh, changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And so when we get to the New Testament, I mean, it's so interesting. Like, when you get to the New Testament, you don't see the Apostle Paul 
um, just bemoaning the fact that work is vanity of vanities, that it's all hebel. We see Paul reflecting on work, and we see him reflecting on work in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and we see him able to say things that just completely overturn Kohelet's consistently neg- negative outlook. And so, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, we read this. <clears throat> Paul's writing to this early Christian community, and he says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I mean, that's such a different outlook. Um, He doesn't say, whatever you do, shrug and enjoy it as best you can, because it's all vapor, and you're speeding toward your inevitable death. He says, work heartily as for the Lord, because Jesus is on the throne and you have an inheritance. Um, like, so, so maybe some of you are in a job that you don't really enjoy. You think it's boring, or you think it's insignificant. You think it's making no meaningful contribution. I mean, will you think about what Paul is saying here, and will you take him seriously? Take Paul seriously. Like, your work, whatever it is, can be done as unto the Lord Jesus himself. It it can be like almost an act of worship, just doing your work. Martin Luther, the reformer, he wrote this. It's a long quote. It's too long, but uh, (laughs) here it goes. So good. He says, Our foolishness consists in laying too much stress upon the show of works. And when, when these do not glitter as something extraordinary, we regard them as of no value. And poor fools that we are, we do not see that God has attached and bound this precious treasure, namely his word, to such common works as filial obedience, external, domestic, or civil affairs, so as to include them in his order and command, which he wishes us to accept, the same as though he himself had appeared from heaven." He goes on, what would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and kettles? How happy would you feel? And would you not know how to act for joy, not for the work's sake, but that you knew that thereby you were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth? I mean, do you hear what he's saying? Uh, He's saying, if Jesus were the one giving you your work, even if it didn't sparkle and shine, even if it wasn't glamorous, even if it felt a little bit boring, even if it didn't rise to like your standards for what makes for significant work, if Jesus himself were to give you your work, even if it seemed fairly trivial, you would accept it and you would do it with joy. And you see, the point is, Jesus is giving you your work. He is giving you your work. He's calling you to work in your job just as if you're working for him. And you see, if it's for him, if it's for the true king of the universe, family, it matters. It matters. Like washing the dishes can be this beautiful act of worship. I try to remind myself that like, on, a, on a daily basis. But it can be. It can I be a beautiful... I over here in this bathroom. <laughs> And, and, and so can, you know, performing open heart surgery or, or tutoring someone in math or homeschooling your kids. I mean, 
All of these things matter because they're given, they're given to us by the Lord of the universe. So regardless of, of what the work is, if it's, if it's going to school and studying, some of you are students, or if it's cleaning the floors of a hospital, or if it's just changing a dirty diaper, designing a piece of software, repairing a broken lock, like helping a, helping a company with a marketing strategy, um, teaching a, a classroom of unruly kids how to read, like, you see, whatever it is, I mean, if it's, Greg came over yesterday and just did this beautiful work of like caulking around the perimeter of our kitchen and helping us get it ready for painting. And it's just like, oh, what a blessing. It's the, what did you call it, Greg? It's the, um, the what profession? The blessed profession. The blessed trade. Yeah, like whatever you're doing as a Christian, like you are always working for someone who is worthy of your very best. You're always working for someone who's worthy of your very best. Um, the resurrection changes everything. Um, if there's no resurrection, your work really won't matter in the end. You see that? Like, as soon as there's no resurrection, you'll die, and then all of Kohelet's complaints just come rushing in. But if God has raised Jesus from the dead, and if, and if God also plans to raise you from the dead, and not only you, but someday um, to resurrect the entire created order, then what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 begins to make sense, and we sang about this. Um, he writes, therefore, and, and in context, therefore, because of the resurrection, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, your work really has a future. Really has a future. Like somehow it is secure in Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright, he reflects on this so beautifully. He says, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. Wouldn't that feel, wouldn't that feel just like totally um, futile? He says, you're not doing that. He says, you're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange as it may seem, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. I love that. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien of uh, Lord of the Rings fame he, he has a little short story. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's called Leaf by Niggle. Have any of you read this? Leaf by Niggle? Yeah, Sarah, Meredith. Um, the story, I mean, this is a bad paraphrase, but the story is basically, it's kind of an allegory, but I mean, there, there was once this guy named Niggle, and, and he had a vision um, of creating this, uh, he was a painter, of painting this beautiful tree, set within this beautiful landscape, and, and he could just see the whole thing in his mind's eye. And, and so he set out to bring his vision to reality. And, uh, and he worked for years and years, but it was always a struggle because he niggled. He niggled, that's why he's called niggle. He niggled. It, like, he, couldn't, he could never get it quite right. And, and not only that, but he was constantly being interrupted by neighbors and others in his little village who needed his attention and help. And, and, so, and so basically, to, to cut the story short, I mean, he works and he works for all of these years, 
and he finishes like a single leaf. One leaf. Uh, it's a beautiful leaf, but it's only one leaf, and then he dies. And, and for years, that single leaf, it was kept in the local museum, and, and for a while, people were like, ooh, cool, a leaf. Uh, but then it wasn't long before people would just pass by the leaf, and, and then it wasn't long before no one even noticed the leaf. And, and then it you know, wasn't long after that before Niggle was just entirely forgotten. Entirely forgotten. But the story continues. Um, later, after his death, Niggle is kind of like exploring the new creation of God's world. And he's doing it on a bicycle, which I love. Uh, like, whether or not there are um, big trucks in the new creation, there will be bicycles. <clears throat> and here's, I'll just read what Tolkien writes. He says, so Niggle's on his bike. The bicycle was rolling down along, excuse me, the bicycle was rolling along over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. Then, all at once, a green shadow came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind in a way that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide and he said, it's a gift. It's a gift. And you see, family, um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that you're niggle, and I'm niggle. And, and we will labor, and we will toil, and we'll labor and toil according to whatever vision God has given us. And we might just feel like we're doing it poorly. We might only finish one leaf, and then we will die, and we'll be forgotten but one day, one day, we'll see the tree. Your labor isn't in vain as long as Jesus Christ is on the throne. Now, in the meantime, uh, you know, we might look like janitors and nurses and professors and social workers and engineers and locksmiths and heads of schools and software designers and retirees and homeschool moms. But really... Like, we are um, like these secret agents of the kingdom. Uh, we are giving the world little glimpses of that good world to come, however imperfectly, however freely. And, and it is so imperfect, and it is so frail, but we're giving in the world little glimpses, little foretastes of what will be true when Jesus returns and makes all things new. It's hard to work on an empty stomach. And so we have this meal, and um, will you look here with me? Will you, will you think about our Lord Jesus with me? Um, yes, we live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world in which our work is cursed, but family, remember that Jesus has come to bear the curse. He came into our world, and he came into our world as like this common peasant laborer, and he experienced himself the futility and the difficulty of work. 
And, and he went to the cross and died, bearing um, the whole curse of sin in his body, and then he rose from the dead triumphant, um, overcoming the curse, undoing it in order to redeem us from it. Not just to save souls, but to save our world, to save our work, to heal even now our relationships with our work. To liberate us from the ways that we use work selfishly and destructively. To save us from the ways we tend to overvalue work. We tend to depend on it too deeply for our, our identity and security. And um, the invitation for you is to root your identity in him. I mean, that's one of the gifts we get whenever we come to this table. Here through Christ, you are given your true self by grace. Um, so much of our identity we draw from our work, which is um, why bad days can be like entirely debilitating and unemployment can be so demoralizing and, and losing the ability to work can be so discouraging. But knowing Jesus, receiving Jesus, it gives you an identity that is deeper than your performance, than your accomplishments, than your successes and failures. It's so much deeper than our work. Like this is a solid rock on which we can stand, this one Jesus. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he is your life. Um, Kohelet says, there's nothing better for a person to do than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Family, look at what Jesus has accomplished for you. He has toiled for you. He has labored for you in his life and death and the resurrection. And look, he shares it all with you. He shares it all with you. He holds nothing back. And so come. Come to this table and eat and drink and be merry. For tomorrow you die. <laughs> but that's not the end. One day you'll see the tree. Let's pray.